0: you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 3. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the core doctrines of the Christian faith. We have been looking at those very foundational beliefs of all those who have called themselves to be Christians over the last 2,000 years. And in some ways, all that we have been looking at so far, though good in and of itself, has been building up to this week, this morning. For today, we will look at that doctrine which stands at the very center of Christianity, at the very center of the Bible, at the very center of God's plan for all of creation. It is the doctrine of salvation. And it is here at this doctrine that we divide all of humanity Uh, from now and from all time past and all time forward into two groups. Those who have experienced God's salvation and those who have not. It is here that we divide all religions throughout the history of human civilization into two groups. Christianity and everything else. And this morning, uh, you need to come individually to a place where you know exactly where you fall in terms of these groups. You need to come to the place where you see that ultimately nothing is as important as this decision this morning. Answering this question in your mind and that is, have you partaken of the salvation that God has secured and offers to you in Christ? Ultimately that more than anything else, more than job, more than money, more than food and life itself, this is the question. That we must come to an answer to. And if we do not have the right answer to that question, then we will be sorrowful, though our bellies are full and our wallets are thick and our worms are home. So, this morning, as we look to Romans chapter 3, we want to get to this heart, to the very heart of this doctrine of the salvation that God provides through Christ. And even though our focus will be on verses 21 through 26, in order to, to see the contrast, to get the larger context, we want to read again the passage that we read and, 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 uh, and explained last week, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 3 on through verse 20. So if you have your Bible, Romans chapter 3, follow along as I begin reading at verse 9. We've already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of God this morning. Some have called verses 21 through 26 the greatest chapter in the Bible, or rather the greatest paragraph in the Bible, and it's from these verses that we see why it is that God must be the one who saves sinners, and we also see how it is that God can save sinners. And so from these verses, we want to observe four things about the doctrine of salvation, the very salvation that we need in our lives. Number one is this Salvation is needed because sinners dishonor God's glory. Salvation is needed because sinners dishonor God's glory. As we saw, verse twenty-one begins with "but now," and it was very clear when we read the entire text. I hope that you saw that verses twenty-one through twenty-six was not just some isolated uh, statement or teaching that Paul had in there, but came as part of a larger argument. And in fact, verse twenty-one begins a major transition in the book of Romans. For from the very opening chapters and verses in chapter one, Paul has been building this argument, and he has been building it and building it and building it. And it's only here in the middle of chapter three that that argument now begins to shift. He, t- he lays this foundation in the first three chapters and now he begins to launch out in from it uh, telling us about Christ. And in fact it is here that we saw really uh, all, all, this is what all of last week's sermon was about, was this leading up argument. And so if you were here last week what you're about to hear is a refresher. If you weren't here, you will be all caught up at the end of this, all right? Paul begins the letter to the Romans saying this, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? For, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. That sets the tone for the book of Romans. And what he is going to show is what the gospel is, what it means for your life, what it means for the church, what it means for the world. And he begins in the very next verse, verse 18, by showing uh, right up until chapter 3, verse 20, that ultimately the gospel is required because all of humanity has dishonored God. They have failed to give God the glory he deserves. And that is why humanity needs salvation in the first place. It is why they need to hear the gospel. His entire argument can be summarized in verse 23, there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of the sin of our very first father, the first man, Adam, and because of our own sinfulness, which springs from our sinful nature, we are in every way guilty before a holy God. We have fallen short of His glory. Now what does that mean, falling short of His glory? Does it mean that that we are accounted sinners because we're not as glorious as God? Is that what it means, that we... Fall short that we compare ourselves to God and say we don't measure up so we're sinful? No, not at all. Because there are those angels that are not as glorious as God and yet they are not accounted sinful. No, falling short of the glory of God means simply this. We have failed to display the glory of God. We have failed to appreciate the glory of God. We have failed to have a goodness in our own lives that is in keeping with the glory of God. This is what Paul again says back in chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? It's the truth about who God is. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. What Paul is saying is, look, whether it is the Jews who have the law and the special revelation of God, or whether it is a pagan out on an island somewhere who has no access to the, the Jewish covenant, who has no access to the law of God, who's never read the Ten Commandments, nevertheless, all of them suppress the fundamental truth of who God is and fail to worship Him as God. Paul says. They do not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What brings the wrath of God from heaven? What does God consider to be the heart of ungodliness and unrighteousness? Dishonoring his glory through idolatry. And the reality is, we are all idolaters. Now, some of you may think, well, look, I don't have a statue of Buddha in my house. I don't, I don't have a little wooden figurine. I don't go to uh, some very large idol and bow down to it. What makes you think I am an idolater? What gives you the right to say that? Well, simply this. Just because our idolatry is not as obvious as it is for some, that, nevertheless, does not mean that we are not idolaters. For idolatry, at the end of the day, simply means putting something on the same level as or in place of God in terms of importance in our life. And the reality is, when we, when we think of it that way, we are all idolaters. Because all of us have established in our lives little gods to get us out of our problems, Tim Keller calls them functional saviors. We would not necessarily build a shrine to them. We would not necessarily bow down to them and call them God. Nevertheless, they serve as God in our lives. Let me just give you a practical example. Many of us, if not all of us, on some level fear the opinion of others. We fear the opinion of others. We, we frighten and say, what are they going to think about me? What are they going to think about this decision I made? What are they going to think about this outfit? What are they going to think about how my hair looks this morning? We fear the opinion of others. And so, what do we do? What is our functional God to save us from our fear of others? It's lying, isn't it? It's lying. We lie, don't we? Now, sometimes it's big lies. Sometimes we have said, Oh, I will do this, and we didn't do it. And instead of saying, I forgot, we fear the opinion of others. We fear that they're going to think that we are a failure. We, we, we fear that, that, that their opinion is going to go down. So what do we do? We lie. We say, well, I did it, but I got lost in the email somewhere. I don't know what happened to it. Or the dog ate it. Right? Or, uh, you know, I, I put it by your doorstep and the wind must have blown it away. Whatever it is, okay? The bank lost a transaction. We lie and we say, I did this when we didn't do it. Why? Because lying is the functional savior of, 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 of saving us, escaping, providing a way of escape from the consequences of our actions and specifically our fear of others. Now well, We do this in small ways too, don't we? By simply fudging the truth. Uh, friends come out of an exam together what uh having all received their test. how did you do how did you do everyone is saying i got an a plus i got an a plus i got an a plus and you got a b minus and you're thinking i don't want to feel like the idiot here maybe you got worse than that and so what do you say oh i did okay i didn't get an a plus i got a i got an a minus and we fudge that truth just a little bit many of us on social media fudge the truth don't we because we only put sometimes good things on there. Now, I'm not saying that we should, we should live in Boohooville and use Facebook and Twitter to just complain and complain and whine and complain. That's not honoring to God either. But because we don't give the entirety of the truth on those things and very often spend the truth in our favor so we look good, we are doing that. Why? It is a functional Savior To get us out of what we perceive will be the very terrible thing of having people think less of us. We fear man and therefore we exalt deception, deceit, and lying to God-like status. It's our Savior rather than God being our Savior. That's just one example. We could go through the entirety of our lives picking it apart that way, where we are placing our trust, we are giving our worship over to things other than God, and therefore we have all become idolaters, all of us. And it is all bound up with our sin before God. We have failed to keep His law. We have traded His glory for other things. And this means God's judgment is coming upon us. Now, again, we are prone to think, well, it, it, we're not really all that bad. In fact, I just had a conversation a couple of days ago with a family member, and, and it, was, it was interesting because it reminded me, uh, frankly, of another uh, conversation that I had read about, was not there for, between uh, a pastor named Mark Dever and some, uh, a Harry Krishna uh, man ...when he was in Cambridge, England. He said he was coming out of a bookstore... ...and a Hare Krishna was standing there... ...and was wanting to sell him what was supposedly a Christian magazine. And he said, no thank you. And he started to leave and he said, well why not? He says, you're a Christian, I'm a Christian, why don't you buy my magazine? And the pastor turned and said, well... Um, I think we believe very different things about Christ. I don't think that you're a Christian uh, like I am. And, and this puzzled the Harry Christian. So they began asking and, and talking back and forth. And finally, Pastor Everett said, Look, I think here's the reality. If both of us stood up with megaphones right now in the, in the, in the street and, and proclaimed our beliefs, people would like your view of Christianity more than mine. And he said, Why is that? And he told the Harry Christian simply this. Do you or do you not believe humanity is fundamentally good? And he said, of course, don't you? And never said, no, I don't. The Bible says, whether we want to hear it or not, that humanity is fundamentally sinful. That at our core, we are sinners. Just because just because there's a little grease fire in my house and I go either, uh, uh, either put it out with a rag or I get the fire extinguisher and, psh, 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 and it's gone, that doesn't make me a firefighter, does it? No. If by profession I am a firefighter, then I will put out fires. But just because I put out fires doesn't make me a firefighter. Likewise, we aren't called sinners just because we commit some sins. We commit sins because, at our core, we are sinners. And that sin is, is seen more clearly than any other time than when we dishonor God with our lives. And thus, we need God's salvation to escape the judgment that is coming to us because of our dishonoring of Him. The question is, how will we get this salvation? How will we experience forgiveness from our sins? Paul explains, secondly... That it's like this salvation comes through faith as God's gracious gift. Salvation comes through faith as God's gracious gift. Remember that Paul isn't just sitting around writing off little doctrinal essays thinking someone might read them someday. These these letters are written to churches who are going through either good times or bad times. And he is writing these letters to both encourage them to sometimes correct problems by addressing them, but all the while teaching them truth rooted in the gospel. And even though it's very popular today, frankly, it's, it's very, very popular and in, in, among some circles for scholars and pastors to say uh, it's not true, I think you cannot help but read the New Testament and, and see very clearly that the issue of legalism was a huge problem that Paul was addressing in his letters that he's writing. He's writing specifically in the context of Christianity that is growing out of Old Testament Judaism. And like himself, Paul sees other Jews believing that they are going to be saved ultimately because they have kept the law. God's grace has caused them to be born into the covenant people of God. God's grace may have even opened their eyes and they trusted in Christ but they remain saved on the final day by their adherence to God's law. Now, I hope you don't believe that, but some Christians do. They say, well, God's grace got me in, but it's my works that keep me in. It's my continuing to plod along and obey. That's what's going to keep me saved. No, that was the, that was the problem, the legalism that the Jews had and that Paul is writing about in trying to correct he says everyone gentile who doesn't know god jew has the promises they are all sinful under god's condemnation and yet he goes on to say but nevertheless nevertheless doing good works keeping god's law obeying him time and time again is not going to fix the problem he says in verse 21 the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, righteous, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. which he says is to be received by faith. Some of you may have read the book Pilgrim's Progress, and it's John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life. If you have not read that book... I would encourage you to read it. In fact, I've probably got an extra copy at home. I will give it to you so that you can read it. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said he read it every year uh, and and loved it. And so uh, I, I will have to say, though, you know, this is... This is allegory and fiction written in the 1600s, so it's not as sophisticated as we would think of today. And frankly, uh, Bunyan is not all that clever in hiding what he's trying to get at, okay? Uh, He's pretty upfront, and so when you have a guy named Mr. Legality, what do you think he's going to be on about? OK, well, Mr. Legality is it sees the celestial city, what Bunyan is describing metaphorically as heaven. And he says, I want to get there. And instead of going through the wicket gate, which is symbolic of faith in Christ, instead, what he sees is what he what he thinks is a low mountain, another way to get there, the mountain of Sinai. Of course, if you've read the Bible, you know the significance of Sinai is that that is where the law was given. So Mr. Legality says, I'm not going to go this this rough and difficult pass through the wicked Gate. I'm going to take the easy way out, and I'm going to simply climb Mount Sinai up to the heavenly city. And so at first, the path... Is fairly easy, and yet, and as Mr. Legality continues to walk, what happens is that the slope begins to get more and more sharp. So much so that he is he is grasping his way up this mountain to the point that he feels like the mountain itself has gotten so tall and so straight that it's actually bending back over his head, so that it's impossible for him to climb it. Now, what is what is Bunyan getting at there in the metaphor? Well, the same thing that Paul is spelling out very clearly in his letters, and it's simply this. You cannot ever do things good enough to earn forgiveness and life and salvation with God. It doesn't come by works of the law, whether it's keeping the law of Moses or just being a very good person. And the reality is, even today, people think that way, don't they? I think if you pull most people and in various religions, they may explain it differently, but at the end of the day, it's simply this. There is some kind of giant cosmic scale. A black side and a white side. And if all of the, the, the bad things that you've done are heaped on the black side and all the good things you've done are heaped on the white side, if the white side weighs slightly more than the bad, you get into heaven. And Paul says, not on your life. It doesn't work that way. Righteousness, that is needed to be with God to experience forgiveness and salvation cannot come by works of the law. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says our sin is so pervasive that we can never earn righteousness before God. In fact, just before this in verse 20, Paul says doing good things can never cause God to declare you righteous before Him. But friends and loved ones, this is the best news in the world. This is the best news in the world. For though we are tempted to believe that we can work our way to heaven and that is an impossibility, God says, don't bother trying. You don't have to. Because I have provided the means by which you can be saved. Paul says, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God gives sinners the righteousness they need to stand before Him. His own righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ. God says, I will not make you keep law in order to be made right with me. Instead, I will simply give you what you need to be made right with me. And Paul says, even the very law that some of you are depending on to be made right with me, in and of itself says it cannot make you right before God, but rather points forward to this gift of salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. Therefore, what Paul is saying is simply this there is only one way one person, one righteousness that will cause us to experience God's salvation, that will cause us to be right with God, and it is through Jesus Christ. We receive it not by working for that righteousness, but rather by trusting God to give it to us as His gift. And the question becomes then, how can He give this to us? How can He give us this gift? That's what we see in verse 25, and this is the third that we want to see this morning about the doctrine of salvation salvation is accomplished by God's redeeming sacrifice salvation is accomplished not by our sacrifice but by God's redeeming sacrifice Paul says verse 24 sinners are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith now there are a lot of what we call $10 theological words there. So let's just walk through this so we're clear on what Paul is saying. Because a lot of these words we just don't use today. First of all, Paul says sinners are justified. Here is one of the keys to understanding our salvation in Christ. Justification speaks to our legal standing before God. As sinners, we are legally guilty before God because we have broken His law. Yet the Bible says sinners can be justified. That is, they can be declared not guilty. In fact, more than that, they can be declared righteous before God. Now, the question is how? How do we get this right legal standing before God? Well, Paul says we receive this as a gift of God's grace because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God redeemed us, that is, brought us out of captivity to sin by the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, we have to ask ourselves, how can He do this? How can He free us from our slavery to sin? How can He say that we are righteous and innocent when in fact we are guilty before Him? Paul says we can have this redemption. We can have this justification because Christ was sent forward by God himself as a propitiation for our sins. Now, it's here that I have to say, if you're sleeping, wake up. If you're bored, get interested, because this idea of propitiation is the very heart of Christianity itself. If you understand this, the whole Bible will hang together in your mind. The gospel will make sense. Salvation will make sense. But if you don't get this, you're not going to get anything. Propitiation, at the end of the day, is about... Christ being offered as a sacrifice. Now, on some level, we get sacrifice. We understand what that means. In fact, we understand what it means for some to sacrifice for other people. In fact, I can remember when I was in high school, there was a plane that went down. It went down over the water in the midst of a storm, and uh, many people died. There were some who survived, though, and as the Coast Guard or whoever it was uh, was coming in, they kept lowering uh, these these uh, rescue cables that had this big canvas harness around it, and you were to slip that harness over your head, around your arms, so that it went uh, around your chest, under their arms, and then it would winch you right up into the helicopter, and you would be rescued out of the water. And I can remember later on when they made a movie, TV movie about this event based on the eyewitness accounts of those who had been in the water and on the plane. Those are the rescue workers. And they said that one of the most amazing things was that there was one guy, every time the, 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 the safety ring would come to him, that harness, he would pass it off to someone else and tell them, No, you go ahead, you go first. No, you go ahead, you go first. And they would go up and then the ring would come back down and he would grab it and he would hand it to somebody else and he would hand it to somebody else and he would hand it to somebody else else over and over and over again. Here was a guy who had been on a plane, he had been injured, he is floating for his very life with hypothermia setting in and he keeps passing the, the salvation that is dangled before him on to someone else. Eventually, in fact, everybody was saved but him because he couldn't keep going and he drowned in the water that day. He died giving up his life for others. We get people sacrificing for others. And people think the death of Christ is like that. Jesus dies and we get salvation and it's all very nice, but it's all very vague. And there's no clear line of thought connecting how it is Jesus' death actually gets us salvation. How does Jesus' death actually make us right before God? And Paul wants to blow the fog of vagueness away by dropping this word on us of propitiation. And he tells us that God put Christ forward as a propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? Propitiation is, again, sacrificial language that speaks to an appeasement of wrath. In other words, it's like this. God... In full justice, in full righteousness. Not in any way that we can look at him and say he is bad, he is mean, he is capricious. But no, fully just, God's wrath is about to be dumped upon our heads for our sin. And yet Christ willingly comes and he takes the wrath for us. So much so that God is no longer angry at his people for their sins. For the fullness of his wrath has been poured out on his son and the sacrifice that he offered on the cross. That idea of Christ's substitution for His people is the very heart and soul of salvation and the Bible itself. The Bible speaks about all kinds of things that were accomplished by the cross. Our reconciliation to God being moved from His enemies to His friends. The expiation of our guilt before God. The stain of our sin being cleansed by God. Our slavery to sin being broken by God giving us freedom from it. The debt of our sin being cancelled. Our spiritual enemies being conquered and put to open shame at the cross. But all of that is only possible because Christ died as a propitiating sacrifice. That is to say, all of those things hang together and find their meaning and significance and reality. In this one fact, Christ died as a substitute for His people. He stood in their place before God. And Because we can never offer any kind of sacrifice perfect enough to atone for our sins. It was God Himself who offered the sacrifice for us. It's not as if. Don't ever get the idea that God is somehow angry and mad. And he's, he's in ready to, to, to lash out hellfire upon us. And Jesus steps in and says. No, no. We need to love them. Now Notice it was God the Father. Who sent forth the Son. As a propitiating sacrifice. It was God's love for his people. That resulted in the sending of Christ. As the sacrifice that we need. And in all of this Paul says God himself is held up as glorious for finally salvation reveals God's righteous character. Salvation reveals God's righteous character. Paul says in verses 25 through 26 all of this all of this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if we understand Christ's sacrifice, then we will see that it's an amazing display of God's mercy. But it's more than that. It's also a vindication of God's righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? What is Paul talking about here? He means this: the offering up of Christ as a propitiating sacrifice shows us the righteousness of God. It shows us something about His character. Now you say, "Well, why, why? was that necessary?" Well, Paul says it's necessary because previously God had passed over former sins. That means to say, or that is to say, Paul means that instead of bringing about judgment upon sinners, God let it go. Year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia, when sinners stood and lived and died before God and they deserved immediate judgment, God didn't give it. From the garden to Joseph's own doubting of God's plan before Jesus was born. Every single person deserved God's wrath immediately poured out upon them, but God held back. And what Paul says is, if you understand who God is, and you see that He did that, then immediately we have a problem. Because we think that's good, right? God's merciful, and God's gracious, and God's kind, and God's forgiving. But He wouldn't be God unless He judged sin. See, this is the moral dilemma with God just forgiving people. He can't do it because He's God. You and I can do it because we're not God. And because ultimately, though you may have kicked me in the gut or done something really bad to me, I can forgive you, but you just didn't sin against me. You sinned against God in doing that. Therefore, God is ultimately the only one who can truly and finally forgive. And yet, how can he do it when we're guilty? How can he be just and righteous and as holy as he claims to be if he doesn't judge sin? Think about it like this. If we don't have the cross, then the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament says God is not a just God. God is not a righteous God. God is not a holy God. You see, how do you get there? How do you get there? Well, simply this. Think about what the Old Testament sacrifice system is, is saying. It is saying this. These individuals and families come when sin happens, when they want to give thanks. They have a grain offering. But when sin happens, they offer some kind of animal. Its blood is poured out so that God will have His, His wrath appeased and He will look away from them. And then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in for himself and the entire nation and makes atonement. But what happens? The sacrifices keep going. They keep going on and on and on. And because they go on and on and on, the question is, God, how can you be just and let this keep going? The sacrifices weren't effective. Hebrews is clear. He says, the blood of bull and goats cannot take away sin. It's impossible. And yet, that is what the Old Testament sacrifices were based on. The blood of bulls and goats. So if they can't take away sin, God, why are you accepting them? Why are you forgiving your people? Why aren't you judging sin as the righteous and holy God that you are? The answer is Christ. Christ. It's The coming of Christ that says it was okay for God to pass over former sins. It was okay for Him to institute blood sacrifice in the Old Testament. Because all of those things were pointing forward to Christ. They were anticipating the one true sacrifice that would really atone for sins and bring full and lasting redemption. All of those other sacrifices offered in faith were only real, they were only effective, they only worked because Christ was one day going to come. This is the whole argument of Hebrews when he says everything in the Old Testament is a shadow flying off the reality of the person and work of Christ. So the cross, the message of the gospel, reveals God's righteousness because it shows He is not a God who simply lifts up the heavenly rug and wipes our sin under it like some cosmic dust and says, try to do better next time. The consequences of our sin are dealt with. Judgment is given out, not on us, but on God's own Son, Christ. And so it is right and good and just for God to forgive people like Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Ruth and Esther and Nehemiah because because God knew that his own son would ultimately die to take the punishment they deserved. It is okay for God to forgive you and to forgive me of our sins because Christ is the one who took the penalty for them. And so Paul says in the cross, God is seen as both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the one who justifies sinners. He declares them not just not guilty, but righteous before Him. And yet He remains perfectly just in doing so because of the cross. Now today many find any notion of Christ's substitutionary death for sinners repugnant, offensive, When the movie The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe came out in 2005, the leader of the British Humanist Association said the movie depicted what is most hateful in religion, the offering of Aslan for Edmund. Specifically, the sacrifice of Christ for others, she found to be, quote, repugnant. That view is pervasive today. In fact, there are some that claim to be evangelicals that would hold to that view, people that would Claim to be Christians and say the idea of Jesus dying as a sacrifice to God for us is repugnant and we should abandon it as theology. But this idea is nothing new. In fact, back in 1888, an elderly Spurgeon, just years before he died, looked out at the coming generation of pastors and scholars in his day who were embracing the same thing the very same thing that people want to embrace today, the same error. And here was the response that he gave, specifically to the members of his church. He said this, Of late I have heard things that I never dreamed of before, alleged even by professedly Christian ministers against the fundamental doctrines of God's Word. And some have even dared to say that the substitution of Christ, His suffering in our stead, was not just. Then they have added that God forgives sin without any atonement whatever. But if the first be not just, what shall, we, what shall I say of the second? If God continually forgives sin without taking any care of His own moral government, if there be nothing done for the vindication of His justice, how shall the judge of all the earth do right? Then the very foundations of the universe will be removed. And what will the righteous do? Depend upon this whatever modern philosophy may say. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. That is to say, without an atonement and an atonement consisting of the giving up of a a life of infinite value, there is no passing by of human transgression. Friends and loved ones, you can only be saved because of the cross and the cross alone. Therefore, when you look to the cross, see there a display of God's mercy towards sinners. See there a display of God's righteousness in saving sinners. See there God meeting the greatest needs of sinful people. See there an amazing picture of God's holiness for sin, towards sin and His love for sinners coming together in perfect glory. Look to the cross. Believe in the work that Christ did there. Receive God's gift of salvation and then stand in awe of His love. Father, as we think about the cross, as we think about how undeserving we are to have Your salvation, as we think about Christ not remaining dead but rising again from the grave. Father, so many times we hear these things in church and they wash over us in one ear and out the other and we pay them very little heed. But God, I pray this morning that you will help us to stand back in awe of the cross, that you will help us to realize the immensity of what Christ did in bearing the sins of his people and fully satisfying your wrath. Father, despite the fact that we so easily fall into thinking that we must earn your love and your favor and acceptance and salvation and forgiveness before you, God, help us to clearly see there is nothing we can do that would ever cause you to look at us and say that we are innocent in your sight but Father, it's only through the death of Christ for us that this is possible. Father, help us to stand back at the cross and see your love for us sinners. Amen.